This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On today's episode of the podcast, I've brought another literary star to the show, this time to talk about creating a successful career as an independent journalist and writer, and to provide a master class on how to successfully launch, sell, and market your books. My guest is Mr. Ernest Owens, an award-winning Philadelphia-based journalist and the author of the new book, The Case for Cancel Culture. Ernest is the CEO of Ernest Media Empire, LLC. He is the editor-at-large for Philadelphia Magazine and the president of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. As an openly gay Black journalist, he has made headlines for speaking frankly about intersectional issues in society regarding race, LGBTQIA issues, and pop culture. Ernest is the executive producer and host of the podcast, Earnestly Speaking, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, NPR, Rolling Stone, and other prominent media outlets. In 2019, Forbes magazine included Ernest in their annual 30 Under 30 list for his journalism work. Ernest received his BA in communication from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's degree in communication management from the USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. He's an adjunct professor at Cheney University, the nation's first historically black college and university. You guys are going to want to listen closely and take notes during this interview because Ernest drops a lot of useful and actionable tips and information about how he launched and continues to manage his wildly successful freelance writing career. And then we dig deep into book marketing and book promotion. I'm telling you, it is truly a master class in how to get your book out into the world. Even if your book is 10 years old, you can use some of these tips and tricks to sell your book. Now, I'm going to wait while you go get that pen and paper so you can take those notes. I am serious. Go get your paper. All right, you back? Let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Ernest Owens. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me on. This is super exciting. Thank you so much, Lori. I like to start by asking my guest a very basic question, which is, what made you decide to become a writer? Wow, it's so simple, but it still feels very thought-provoking. I think for me, writing was the best way for me to articulate what was in my head. I've done a lot of public speaking, But what I loved about writing is that I had the ability to flesh out my ideas and my thoughts and even revise them in the process. You know, when you're speaking, whatever comes out your mouth, you can't really, you know, replace. But with writing, there's an ability for you to articulate your thoughts, but also clarify them while writing. And once it goes out, 
it kind of feels permanent. It kind of feels, you know, set in stone, like Rosetta Stone, as I would say. And I love that. I really love that. And I loved how there is almost like this sense of the work speaking for itself, literally. You know, when we look at broadcast and we look at other platforms, there's other things that can entice and persuade. But when people read writing, right, when people actually read it, to be able to convey emotions and to provoke people and make people think beyond identity, beyond all of the things that oftentimes can shape our bias, that's power. And that's what I love about writing. The work speaks for itself. It's almost like the talent speaks for itself. There's none of these other qualifiers that could create people to dismiss. You know, I'm 31 years old, but a lot of people in the city I'm I'm in right now, Philadelphia and other parts, do not often know how old I am. Some people imagine a different world altogether. You know, if you're on broadcast TV, you know, someone could say, oh, well, that's a young guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But what if you just put out the words? What if you just put out the writing and just let the work speak for itself? And that's kind of how I believe my career has taken off because so much of what I've done has been inspired and been led by the spoken word. What a great explanation. And so it's so very true that there is a level of anonymity that one gets by putting their work out there and being judged by their words and not by what they look like, their identity, their age, that kind of thing. So that's great. What was your first job, your first professional writing job? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was doing a lot of freelancing for HuffPost, but I, I wasn't getting paid. It was just a contributor. They were paying me in visibility. And while I was in college, that was great because visibility was awesome. And I actually was able to get a lot of opportunities from that exposure, but I wasn't getting compensated. It wasn't until... I graduated. I started doing writer guides. I started freelancing. And I guess the real big paid writing gig I started getting was when I became a reporter and a columnist for Metro, which was the free paper in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York. And I had a nationally syndicated column that ran through Boston, New York, and Philadelphia simultaneously every Friday. It was called The Earnest Opinion, which is the same name of a column I had at the University of Pennsylvania when I was a columnist for our school's paper, The Daily Pennsylvanian. And so the same elements of what that column was about in college was what I did in my city. And it was a great opportunity. I wrote for them for a couple of years. And then next thing you know, I'm at Philadelphia Magazine in 2016. So there was a journey. Something I always like to ask, what would you say was your best kind of education to be a writer? Journalism is something that you have to, you have to do it. You know, you could go to Juilliard all day, but if you don't have the it factor or the hustle to actually act and perform, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it really doesn't. You can do so many classes, but if you don't know how to execute and report or have the compassion, the ethical grounding and the imagination in this business, you just won't make it. You won't. And some people say, well, how does the person with this many degrees and in fellowships can only produce like this and get this? But how does someone without that do it? It's because it's a grit and that grit can't be learned. It can be inspired. It can be encouraged. But you just have to know by doing. And so I encourage every writer, every college student, every person that's kind of figuring out this, that you can only educate yourself so far until you have to be a doer here. Now, some yeah. expertise you have to, you know, you can't just be a doctor and be a surgeon without the necessary courses. But in journalism and in writing specifically, you get better by doing the work. You can't skip the process. You have to do. And so it was very early in my career that 
I tell people all the time, no matter what, if you have a fellowship, an internship, a program, a check, you should always be writing. I write daily. I write consistently. I write stuff that hasn't even been published yet. I've, I've written stuff that if a pitch didn't get accepted back in the day, you know, one of the things I did was I always kept my drafts because sometimes you can rework things in other pieces or, or take it somewhere that's more timely. But I never skipped writing, skipped the actual practice, no matter how good you are. You get better at it. And I definitely have gotten better at it through time, in my opinion. I look at some of the things I've written years ago, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? But it was a sign of the times, and I give myself grace for that. But what I love is that in all of my pieces, from the very beginning until now, where I was in that moment was exactly how I felt, and I expressed it the best of what I could do. And I don't have any regrets about knowing that I led with the best intentions and did the best that I could with what I knew and what I had. And so what I like to tell journalists and writers in general, travel, go out, meet people, network. That's part of it, too. Your resume and your work can only be centered on writing alone. You need to have human experiences. I interned at Philadelphia City Council. I think that was one of the most pivotal experiences that prepared me to be a political writer because I actually was in the dirt. I was in the mud. I was in the room where all this stuff was happening, working on political campaigns and exploring them. I did a lot of these different things. I went to Israel. I interned at a national lobby group. I went to Ghana. I've traveled. I've worked on volunteer projects. All of this exposure gave me insight that later inspired some of the best pieces I've ever written in my career. I love that. And that's something that I've been talking to my students about a lot is this idea that you can be a very skilled writer, but if you have nothing to write about, what you're going to do? You have to live in the world and be about the world to know what to write about. So talk to me a little bit about that strategy, that idea of being an independent journalist. I feel like nobody owns Ernest Owens. Tell me about your mindset or your thinking about why not go for that job at a particular institution? Why stay independent? This is just a great question. And if you would have asked me this Two years ago, I wouldn't have been ready to give the response I'm giving now. I decided to go independent early, early in my career because I was exploited. When I was young and just got out of college, there was a startup publication that was local that I wrote for and wanted to become the editor-in-chief of. That startup tanked not because of me, but because it was just bad management. I didn't get paid the money I was due. I was giving my intellectual property, my IP, my value to a brand that I thought was going to take care of me. I believed everything. I signed a contract. I you know, did all this work. And then the money never came. And rather than this person who was running it honor their contract, they basically put me in a position where it was like, you're going to have to sue me in order to get this money. And I didn't have the resources or the connections that I have now the amount was super low compared to what I'm making now. But at that time, it was crucial. And I had to put my career on pause, work for a corporation for a month with a high salary. And at the time, it was embarrassing because I had so many months of friends and people that was going to the opening. And my closest people know what I'm talking about. But there was a grand opening. There was all this great buzz. And all of my friends thought, hey, Ernest moving on up so quickly, you know, and I thought everything was set. And then when the money didn't come and when stuff just started to be really, really bad, it was a grand opening and grand closing and I was left dry. And so 
there was a moment where I was like, you know, maybe this journalism business isn't for me. So I did this corporate job for a month. The company I was working for was Comcast. I was a contractor at Comcast. <laughs> um, and I was a programming coordinator uh, working at Xfinity. The job was fun, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I wasn't. That's not who I am. It just wasn't. But I needed to do what I needed to do. So I raised, saved a lot of the money up and was trying to find a way to pivot, but safely pivot. And I promised myself in that moment after what happened to me, that if I went back into journalism, that I would not be working for a company, I'll be working with a company. And so very early on, I saw Metro and that's how I connected with Metro, but I went to Metro with the understanding of them. It's like, look, I don't want to be an employee. Can I have a freelance contract? I want to be able to do this where I have my freedom, my agency. And they were like, sure, okay. And that's how I got in Metro. So I shifted out of Comcast and went to Metro. And I remember people was like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You just left this good job. Why would you do this? I said, this is not my calling. I knew what I wanted to do. I just had to reinvent and reimagine what it was. Was it me or was it the situation? And I was like, I'm not going to beat myself up. I realized that it was nothing I did wrong in that situation. I just need to be more strategic. And so from then on, I began to freelance independently. And then a year of that in taxes, I realized, oh, snap, I need to write this stuff off. I need to get myself. So I ended up getting um, a financial advisor coach who I still have to this day. And this financial coach basically handles my bookkeeping, handles all of my finances on that front, got a lawyer and began to establish my LLC. And Ernest Media Empire LLC was born um, in 2018. It's been five years of having the company. Now, the funny part is that throughout my college years, I always would joke that the work I was doing multimedia-wise was an empire. And I used to always say Ernest Media Empire. And so when I met that attorney, who's a good friend of mine, and he asked me, what are you going to name your company? I quickly said Ernest Media Empire. Because it was something that was already said. Since 2012, I was saying this. But it was never actually something that was actually legitimized. It was just something that was the name that I called all the things I was doing, but I had never established an actual LLC. And so in 2018, that's when it happened. And after that, we was on the road. I was had the fluidity to take on contracts from various national and local publications. Philadelphia Magazine is a contract that I've had for seven years. I've written for Rolling Stone Magazine. I've worked with BET. I've taken on many speaking engagements. I began to expand what I can bring to the table beyond just being a writer. And that was when I was able to explore my brand. I got my book contract through my company contract. I wanted to uh, minimize any major liabilities and also be able to write things off. I do a lot of traveling. All of the traveling and things I do, if it's not being paid for by the organization I'm collaborating with, it's coming from me and my business account. What was great about it was that I end up landing on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And it was something to be said that, you know, while everyone's out here working for companies, having these labels, my ability to be on the Forbes 30 on 30 list as an independent journalist doing my thing and reporting and writing, I mean, that was just one of the biggest achievements of my career. And since then, went off to interview people like Oprah, Vice President Kamala Harris on the campaign trail when she ran in 2020, and have been able to establish the brand individually, where people know that any of the clients that I've written for or do work with, they know that they're not paying for just content. They're paying for what I bring to the content. 
And so whether I'm at Rolling Stone magazine, New York magazine, Philadelphia magazine, the Grio, wherever I'm at, I'm bringing my voice, my perspective to any of those situations. And it's so important for writers, especially to establish their style and their voice. And I didn't realize that over the years that I was basically cultivating my voice, my perspective and my unique signature approach that really took off. I'm bringing aspects of my Southern upbringing. I was born in Chicago. My family's from Chicago, but I grew up in Houston, Texas most of my life. I'm bringing my Southern background, bringing my queer background, bringing my Black queer identity, my millennial spirit to what I do. And I'm filling a void in the industry that needs to still include more voices like mine from different identities and walks of life. I'm so hopeful that people listening are hearing what you're saying. One, as a career journalist and writer, that you're not dependent on a corporation that may or may not fold, which, you know, anybody who reads the paper understands that that is a real possibility. But also because you're saying you made your own way and you did it very successfully, which, of course, then leads us to the main point that we're here today, which is your amazing book. The Case for Cancel Culture, How This Democratic Tool Works to Liberate Us All. Can you tell everybody a quick summary of what the book is about? And then we're going to get into the strategy that you used to get the book out into the world. So this is my first ever book. And it was very important to me to do adult nonfiction. I wanted to challenge myself. I didn't want to go memoir. You know, a lot of times Black queer writers and young writers like myself were typecasted. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you got to write about race, which is not there's nothing wrong with writing about race. But they just automatically think, oh, he's going to be the Black Lives Matter writer or he's going to be what I call the queer writer that's going to give a precious story. Oh, how I've overcome life and that. Or they're going to make you the person that's going to give the guide to making money. It's just very much so typecasted. And so very early on in my career, when I wanted to do a book, I said my first book was going to be something that was going to be universal, topical, and something where I was going to be able to add my signature flair. And I wanted to be something that was so me, but also something that no one had read from me before. So I spent many years writing and getting ready to write about cancel culture. And I've written about so much stuff in my career. And I was like, I don't want the book to feel like it's a second leg to something I've already done. I wanted to go completely left, like no one would see this coming. But then when they saw it, they would be like, yeah, he could do that. That's his world. And so that was the big thing. I'm always big on surprises, but that was big to me. But this book is basically the definitive case in favor of council culture, but reclaiming it, redefining it as something that is essential to everyday people. You know, some of the big points I make in the book is that everyday people do not get canceled because we're already being held accountable by the powers that be. This is about a power struggle. It's something that Democrats and conservatives do all around. Everyone's canceling. And there's a hypocrisy there that I expose in the book and explore that really talks about how the most powerful people amongst us are completely divorced from accountability in ways that makes the case for why cancel culture is necessary because it's a democratic tool that allows us as everyday people to combat the ways in which these individuals have basically skirted away from any sense of responsibility, morally, ethically, politically, socially. And this book really delves into that and reframes the narrative on cancel culture to what has been scapegoated by powerful people for years. So it's a big book. It's a lot that's being said, but 
it was something that I was passionate about. A lot of the reporting, the interviews, the research I did was during the pandemic. So I was very preoccupied. It kept me busy while I was also finishing my master's. And I love the book. I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of the audio book. I'm proud of everything that we did to make this happen. St. Martin's Press was an incredible publisher. Um, Macmillan, the whole Macmillan team, everybody over there really believed in this, took a risk. This is a book. There's nothing like it out in the market right now. And it's creating new conversations and really opening up what Black queer writers and, and young writers can bring to the industry. This topic is so controversial, so relevant, so timely, so now. It's like you couldn't have done a better job of picking something to cause a splash, but also to cause people to have a conversation, but not in a gratuitous way. This book is really well done, and you're making such a great point, and you are making people really rethink this idea of cancel culture and how it can be a powerful tool for the people who don't have the power, so to speak. And I love how you incorporated this concept historically, like you went all the way back to the Boston Tea Party to talk about how Americans have been using this tool to speak to the power structure. So bravo to you. I think, you know, like I said, this could be an entire episode just talking about the book. But what we want to talk about is the strategy you employed to sell your book, to get your book out into the world, because so many writers are amazing writers. You know, they got the book, they got the book deal, and they're like, yes, this is where my life begins. And no, baby, it does not begin there. I mean, I should say, maybe it does begin in terms of the work begins, but you have to do so much to sell a book in today's crowded marketplace. And I've been watching you and literally been over here, like literally eating my popcorn, clapping my hands, like, look at this man work. Just watching you, I know you've done East Coast, West Coast, doubled back to both coasts. Yes. Um, C-SPAN has recorded you. You've been at Harvard. You've been at universities. You've been in bookstores. You've been everywhere. You've had big debut parties. So I want you to tell the listeners, when did you start actually planning the like promotional plan for this book? I would say first, get the book done, you know, because you can't, what I learned with my particular book and how the topic evolved, if you try to do anything before you get the actual book done, mm -mm. when that book was done, when that manuscript was complete, I immediately went into, okay, I have something to now sell. I was like, I need to fall in love with this book and put myself into it. And so I didn't think about marketing in the writing process. I just wrote the best damn book I could write. And so once that was done, then I went quick to marketing. I said, okay. You know, what was easy for me was that the people I interviewed for my book that were sources and people I interviewed for my book, they quickly became, in my mind, the first big ambassadors. And that's because I wrote adult nonfiction. So if you're a fiction writer, this might not apply to you. But for me, the people I interviewed in my book specifically, they became people that were quickly the first ambassadors outside of myself. The first rule I told myself is that, number one, the biggest advocate, the biggest spokesperson, the biggest representative of your book, the top CEO or chief financial officer making sure your book sells is you. Publicists, everyone else are also a part of that cabinet. But what you bring to the table, what you give is what they're going to respond to. So if you're very like, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to do any interviews, they're going to stop giving you interviews. If you don't show an energy 
to proceed, it's not going to put the fire in them to also step up as well. I came from the jump as much in love with writing the book as I was a marketing good book. You have to get yourself in a mindset that this is still a business. This is still an industry. That books are not only meant to be written, but also to be sold. <laughs> and so half of what I did was put the energy into writing, for sure. But then also was just as passionate about promoting it. I had worked too damn hard to write a book this deep and this intense for me to then not put my best foot forward in marketing the book. The level of promotion and energy and enthusiasm I have for getting this book out to the world is indicative of the level of passion I had in actually exploring the topic and writing it. And people see that. People see that journey. I didn't know you even knew, right, Lori? Like, I was like, what? You see me out here doing this? But that type of tenacity is what has gotten people to reach out to me to do interviews, to promote, to get involved. Because when people see you working hard, it doesn't go ignored. And so part of my excitement about the book has made other people excited about the book. It also has solicited things beyond my initial blueprint. But I did have a blueprint. And so for me, I said, okay, the publishing team is going to have their own marketing strategy, their own campaign. What is the earnest campaign for this book? What am I planning to do? How much of myself am I giving to it? So for starters, I cleared some of my calendar. You know, I do a lot of things. I I'm a professor at Cheney University. And so this spring semester, I took a sabbatical. I took off. I said, look, I can't, I can't do professoring. I can't teach this semester because my book is here. I had to make time for that. I gave myself the ability to say an opportunity could happen at any moment. How am I going to prioritize this my time? Some things may have to go. Some things need to be tabled into further notice, but I need to give myself some level of time. So I always encourage writers, in my opinion, is that the first six months your book come out, clear that calendar. If you really want to do the damn thing, clear that calendar because you should want to give yourself the ability to travel, to do other things. So the first thing I did was I cleared my schedule and made myself super flexible for the first six months. And that was easy for me because I'm an entrepreneur, but for other people, don't put too many heavy things within the first six months of your book. That was something that was very important to me. You know, I got married in 2021. At the end of 2020, I finished my master's. But I did all of those big momentous things before the book. And that was important to me because I wanted to give myself the ability to go out and market. That was the first thing. Second is I wrote a list of people who owe me things. No, I'm joking. But no, seriously. Who, who have I done favors for? I'm going to keep it 100. Who, who, whose books I've been shouting out over the years? You know, I've shown as a journalist, I've interviewed people. I've shouted out people. I've done something. And it's not that I'm saying I'm being transactional. It's just that. Who are people that like me that I like? I'll frame it that way. Who, who I've been showing up, you know, told me to do this or come to this. So I wrote a list of my IOUs. Who was on my IOUs? Because this is the time to make that ask. This was the first thing in my career that was solely for me. That really is being strategic in the sense that don't ask until you really need it. Absolutely. You know, like IOUs are very powerful and don't be asking for everything all the time. Use it strategically. In my entire career, I've never really asked people for anything of monetary value or marketing value. Normally, I was sharing articles for other companies, for publications. I was selling tickets for nonprofit organizations I was affiliated with. But this was the first time I actually had to step out and say, hey, can you help support this? And no, it's not for a charity. 
it's me. It's all about me, <laughs> essentially. Like this book is helping to make me money. And can you help me make money? <laughs> and can you help me sell my book? So that was different for me because I always did that for other people, but I never was in a position to have to do it for myself. But this was the first time where I had to make that ask. I could say, listen, I got a book coming up. I need your support. You got a nice venue, yada, yada, yada. So that was big. One of the other things I also did was I got myself very much so integrated into the literary community locally. Who are the bookstores in the city? Building relationships with booksellers early. Before the book dropped, before that, I wanted to get familiar with the bookstores in my city, my local bookstores in Philadelphia. I've met some really great people. Janine Cook at Harriet's. Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, who is someone I've known for years, who owns Uncle Bobby's bookstore. My alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, has the Penn bookstore. I lean into the books community, figuring out, you know, who are the local authors? Where do they go? I networked and met great people and built relationships with people that I've admired for years, like Eric Smith. And there's other people in the business that I just like, I want to get familiar. I started showing up to other people's book events, just getting familiar to see how they did their things, taking notes and studying what a book signing looks like, how it should run. So I did a lot of just that very pre-education for myself. I studied other people's book rollouts. There was other authors and people that I, writers that I knew. And I asked them, what was your experience promoting your book? You know, reaching out with friends and just saying, you know, hey, what was your experience like? Or what would you have done differently? Or, or what advice do you give? And doing those reach outs and also showing them love along the way. So that was the early stuff. It's just exploring the scene. You know, you can't conquer if you don't know how to divide. you got to get in there and figure out what's happening. So that was something I did very early. In addition to that, I began to map out what are some of the things I can do and bring to the table. Because publicists and marketing teams, all these people, they have things they want you to do. They have their own connections. But I wanted to reach out to them and say, hey, here's a relationship that you may not know about. Here is a place that I have a connection with that you may not know about. What has really made this book experience great is that I'm bouncing off ideas with the publicist versus the publicist just telling me things. We're bouncing off ideas together. I'm coming to the table with ideas. I'm building networks and, and things. And then he's following up on them. And he's also coming to me with some ideas. And I'm exploring things. And we're working together to make this the best opportunity and experience for everybody involved. So really, the relationship with you and the book publicist and the people that's representing your team or your agent, the goal is that you should come to the table consistently with things that you think could be possible. And be realistic, okay? Don't don't be like, oh, I, I saw my friend on The View, so I want to go to The View. Well, how are we going to make that happen? You know what I'm saying? If you're, if you're starting off. You know, it's not impossible, but it's just like sometimes you have to be realistic about what you can do. And sometimes I think people get so caught up in mimicking other people's way of doing books like, oh, well, this person's on Oprah. That's what I want to be on. It's like, well, I'm not asking Oprah, hey, can you promote my book? She might do it if I build myself up, but I got to, you know, do other things. But that's not, those types of things are so rare that I'm not focused on going for rare things. I'm going for things that are possible if I make the phone call, if I show up. And so it was very big to me to expand on my networks. So saying that part, expanding networks is important. What school did you go to? What organizations are you a part of? Are you a part of a sorority, a fraternity? Are you a part of a journalism organization? Is there any conventions that you go to and partake in? Start to explore places that you can promote and sell your book or talk about your book. That was not hard for me to do. I have a long laundry list of schools and places I've worked with, spoken at, 
And that was opportunity. One big thing I would also add is connect with a local bookseller or distributor, independent distributor that can sell your book on site. That was something no one told me. I was fortunate enough to have Janine Cook at Harriet's. She is my on the ground bookseller as far as distribution. So what I mean by this is that let's say, for example, there is a room of 50 people that's going to be at some gathering. And this is a true story. Janine Cook, what I love about her at Harriet's is that she knows my book is selling. And so she buys a large volume of my books. She puts some of them out on display, but she keeps a nice little stack, about 50, 60 of them, just on stack. And what we do is that if there's an event that I get invited to, I might say, hey, Janine, you can come sell the books there. She has it connected to her own account. She sells the books. The book sales go directly to her bookstore, but she's doing it remotely. And so that is a big deal because not every place you go to is going to be a bookstore. And not everyone's going to have your book. So if you really want to expand the scope of you selling your book, work with an independent bookseller in your your community that has the ability to remotely sell your book. And so we have partnered together for something. For example, there was a woman who owns a restaurant in West Philadelphia. She owns a brand new restaurant. She has a self-published book out. We collaborated and did a book talk together. And I had Janine come out with copies of my book to sell. So she gets all the sales but my book is able to be accessible to an audience of people that would never be able to buy a book at a restaurant. So that was a strategy that I've been doing that's been successful. I would also add nothing like the power of collaboration. Brett Mendel, who is a local truth sayer in Philadelphia, we had a book at the Free Library just recently. The Free Library hosted us to have a conversation. I did the conversation with him. It was his book signing. But what was so dope about the experience is that copies of my book were sold at his event. So I was able to sell copies and sign copies of my book just in being in conversation. So there is an opportunity to find ways to plug the book and collaborate. And people love that, especially when you can bring out your following too. What I would also add too, as far as books go, is be open to traveling. Be willing to travel. And make that time because you just never know how that can spill into something else. And so a good example of that was that I went to Harvard Bookstore um, in Boston, well, Cambridge, to do a book talk. And the book talk was recorded on C-SPAN for book TV. Didn't even know that was happening. But while I was there, I met someone who really loved my talk. And they were with Northeastern and said, wow, you should come to our campus. And we was able to set that up. They bought a bulk of books. They paid for my travel to come down. And I came to Boston within another month off of the strength of another appearance I did for some other school in Cambridge. And so you can sometimes have an event that somebody in that room might be inspired to think, let me find a way to push your book or support your book. There's people creating book clubs that around, I found book clubs around, I've recommended my book and told people, hey, this might be a good book for your book club, but I've expanded the scope of what I could do. And so it's really just about having an imagination. And so very early on, I start taking that time to just flesh out what does a successful book tour look like to me? What does success look like to me in this industry? Is it being on the New York Times bestsellers list? Not necessarily. You know, to be honest, I've learned in my entire career that trying to chase these very grabby things have never really spoken to sustainability in the industry. 
that you could have this Academy Award and never be able to act again or not have a career as long. You could have that one great role and never be in cinema again. Or you could be someone like Angela Bassett, who's been nominated a couple of times and been in the game for over 30 years. So to me, I have to define what success looked like. And it wasn't these trinkets. It was sustainability. It was impact. It was exposure. It was the personal confidence and feeling I had being able to reach as many people as possible. So I consider my book successful because I have seen people's enthusiasm in buying the book, but not just buying the book, but having the love of the book so much that they were promoted outside of myself. When you get to the point where you're marketing your book, but you got people all over thinking of you to market it too, that's success for me. That's exciting. And I want to ask you, what kind of mental mindset work do you do to keep yourself confident promoting your own book? I mean, there's two things. It's really simple for me. Do I want to eat? That's the first thing. You know, closed mouths don't get fed on this boulevard, as they say. I got to eat. If I want to be a professional writer and I want to be able to do this the way I've been doing it for a decade, I need to prioritize the things. I, I have bills to pay. I have trips I want to go to. I am married. I have a brother that's in college that I want to continue to spoil. I have a family. I have friends. I have things I want to do. I have goals I want to achieve. And so I don't do this solely for the sake of vanity. I think we need to take ourselves out of it. If you're just too busy working about all this other stuff about yourself, what about your priorities? What about your responsibilities to the people around you that you care about? What about your financial obligations? What about those things? And so I'm reminded that this needs to be done or I'm doomed. <laughs> like, or I'm going to change a career. Like, you gotta go back to Comcast. You gotta have to go back to Comcast. Like, right. You know what I'm saying? I love Comcast. They sponsored things for me. I actually had my book signing at the Comcast Technology Center that oh. they sponsored. So shout out no, to No, we love Comcast. Comcast, we love you. Because sponsor Comcast. And it's Wi-Fi here too. Like, so yes, no, but to your point, my mom works for Comcast. Fun fact. Yeah. So I tell people all the time, like, it's a matter of if you can afford to simply second guess or to think, then you are privileged. What a privilege it is to be able to decide whether or not you want to market or promote your book, a book that technically some people would have killed for, would have done everything in their wildest dreams to have. That mindset is the first mindset is that, do I want to eat? That's one. The second is that I have to remind myself of the bigger battles I had to get to this point. It took a lot for you to do a damn book proposal. It took a lot for you to get a book deal. So to me, the nervous part for me in this entire process was going through the consistent meetings and having to write the proposal and going through several revisions. The time it took to launch this thing. To me, once I got the deal and I got in the book, this is the sweet part. This is to me the red carpet part. This is the best part of the entire process. I'm in love with this process because the work has been done. So if you're telling yourself, I don't know how I can pitch to a bookseller. How did you pitch to a company to invest in taking your book compared to thousands of curies they get every single month that they chose you. So how dare you second guess yourself to ask a bookseller to do it when you was able to convince a publisher to publish the book? That's it. You got to rewind it. it. You got to rewind it. You got to think you did all of this work to pitch to a publisher to get to that point alone and to make it through that's a hard thing. And we don't take the time to savor. One of the things I love the most about being independent and being to myself is that I've been able to process and really take in 
every single step of this journey and it's made me have a larger sense of gratitude because this is not normal. Most people in this business do not get book deals. There are so many people that's been throwing a noodle at the fridge and hoping it's going to stick. And so for the very few of us in this large market that's been blessed and fortunate to get to that point, don't throw away your shot. Remember what made you want to do this. Remember what made you want to actually write a book. Remember all of those things. And if you come to the table and you actually articulate what makes this book special, talk about what you said in your proposal when you made the pitch. That's the same type of heart and goal and passion you should bring to these people. And understand that when you're making that pitch, it's not about you. It's about an audience of people that need to see and read this book. Because if you don't know how to articulate that, then why the hell did you write the book? Amen. Seriously. Amen. Thank you. That's so good. And it's so true. Why did you write the book if you didn't believe in it enough to get it out in the world? And we have to think like that. And it is a mindset shift. I mean, you really have to think that way because it's just too easy. Like, oh, no one's going to like it. All right. Why me? Who cares? Again, you got the book already. You better go out there and sell it. Why did you do all this work otherwise? Excellent. So one last question about this before we wrap up. And that is, I know, especially with a book about cancel culture, that there's going to be some backlash, you know, some some critics. But I was impressed because I remember seeing, I know that Piers Morgan and I think Elon Musk were both like criticizing you or criticizing the book, saying like, oh, this is the dumbest thing we've ever heard or, you know, cancel culture. How could that be a good thing? And then I remember, I think I saw a tweet that you were like, thank you, Elon Musk. My book just sold 50,000 more copies or whatever it was. Talk to me about how you use, quote unquote, negative publicity to still sell more books. Well, for starters, you know, anything you put out in the world is going to have a lover and a hater. So if you think you can avoid criticism about your book or whatever you're doing, just get that out of your head immediately. There's no way to get everybody on board with something. Um, it's just not going to happen, right? We have a society that is subjective, right? There are people who just don't like us the moment we walk in a room. We, we don't even have to open our mouth. There's gender bias, racial bias, homophobia, bigotry, transphobia, all of the phobias, right? And those are things that's out of your control. That's a personal problem. So if people have a personal problem with my book, that's their personal problem. That's their personal prerogative. You know, that's part of civility, Right. Um, as long as people are respectful and keep their hands to themselves and fall back, we're good. So, you know, Elon Musk felt some type of way. I'm flattered that he even knew I have a book out. I'm like, well, well, damn, you're the one of the richest men in the world. And you read something I wrote. And we're both Penn alum, by the way. He, he went to the University of Pennsylvania as well. But the fact that you took time out your day. To let people know, when that happened, I told everybody, look, Elon Musk said something. We didn't care what he said. Everybody was like, what? The book went to number one in new releases in certain categories on Amazon. You know, it was just the, the, the traffic. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Because there's a group of people that probably hate read the book. I don't care. You know, they read it, but they read it. And maybe some people learned something new. I don't know. But it was just like the fact that that happened. Pierce Morgan you know, brought me on his show at the very beginning when his book came out and, and it was a very hot and heated interview. But the funny thing I can say is that now that we're in May, I've been on the show two times since. I was like, why are you so obsessed with me? No, I just, I, I mean, Mariah Carey said it best. I just, I go on and look, people, you know, it's whatever, but like I go on there and there's YouTube views of videos that has over a half a million views. 
And they're calling me the author of the case for cancel culture, the logo, the branding, like people are looking it up. And every time I make these appearances, I can go on Amazon because that's, I mean, there's sales all over the place, but Amazon, I can just see it comes back up in the top 10. We're three months in the book and the book is still on those charts. They're still in conversation. People are still getting exposed to it. And I'm consistently on a daily daily basis, getting emails, letters, notes, DMs from people across the world, from Great Britain. I have, a, I have a whole Great Britain contingency. I've made so many TV appearances in Great Britain that there's like a whole subsector of followers of mine that's from the UK. I've gotten a lot of American podcasts and radio interviews, but I have not gotten many TV interviews in America. I have not been on MSNBC for this book, CNN, any of these places yet. But, you know, Britain now, been on different outlets. And so I've been flattered. You know, I'm on, Dan Wooden has a show in, in Great Britain. I'm on there like every month. Um, Pierce Morgan, I've been consistently on that show. But there's been an interesting following. I have these real strong conservatives. I got local people. I got people from the West Coast, East Coast, the South. It's just been an interesting response. But that's what's great about this topic in this book is that I've been able to find ways to bring it on. And even my publicist, you know, I had an interview on Newsmax. I will talk on conservative media if it's a civil conversation. I've talked on conservative media shows. I will go on Piers Morgan Uncensored. I will go on Progressive Conversation. I will talk to black women like you. I will talk to everybody about this book. That was one thing I remember telling my publicist from day one. This is not going to be a curated tour. Let's go places where we can keep the conversation, lean into that discomfort, lean into people's challenging topics, be willing to debate. I knew this book was going to be a hot topic for me to act like I can't believe people are debating and disagreeing with my points. No, that's what I wanted. Like, it's a dream that Elon Musk, because I was writing, I was thinking of people like Elon Musk. I was thinking of these types of powerful people. And so the fact that they're bothered means that I have hit a core. That's what this is about. So, yeah, I mean, negative press, all of that in this regard to a book this controversial, that's according to plan. Yes, that's what should happen. Civilly. Yeah. So, like you said, the book just came out. You know, the shelf life of a new book, I think, is a full year. But can we ask... Are you working on, like, do you have an idea for your next book? Is a next book or is there a film, a documentary? Like, what's next for Ernest Owens? More things to come. More things. (laughs) Every option is on the table. Everything's on the table. And I love to be in a position where I can be able to just say anything is possible. And I'm looking and exploring various ways to continue what I do. And so I always tell people to stay tuned. But one thing I will say is what I can talk about is this book and this book tour. I'm going to the South this summer. I'm looking forward to Houston. I'm looking forward to New Orleans around Essence Fest. If you're around, man, you might catch me over there in New Orleans. I'm going to be in Houston. I'm excited about some other cities. And I also want to make a really cool special announcement as well. People have been following this. On Saturday, August 26th, I am helping to put on and co-produce a Philly bookstore crawl. This is the first of its kind. It is incredible. It's going to be a book crawl. Like everybody has beer crawls and all that stuff. We're having a book crawl. And it's going to be on Saturday, August 26th, that afternoon. We're working with various bookstores, myself, Eric Smith, a couple of local authors and some great notable writers. I think that's so awesome. And I, of course, will put links in the show notes to all of those sites for the Philly 
book crawl. And I just think that's a perfect way to end here. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope people got so many ideas and inspiration about what to do. And the final thing that I like to remind people is that your book is always new as long as everybody hasn't read it yet. So even if your book came out five years ago, you can still use these ideas that Ernest just shared to go back out and sell your book some more, collaborate, create an event. Look what happened with Black Lives Matter. You have books about race that no one was touching with the same level of energy until that happened. You never know what topic could make people reinvent if a person passes away. Look, we lost Harry Belafonte last month. There's a rise and uptick in people reading the biographies about his life and reading his book. You just never know how your role can shape and shift things. You just never know how it can impact and inspire people and how it can come into the conversation in a different way. And what I love about this topic on council culture is that, you know, look, we're going to be talking about this for a while. (laughs) And what I love is that I'm already getting it happening now where I'm getting media appearances, not to promote the book, but just as, hey, we have a topic on council culture. You wrote this book about it. What do you got to say about it? That's cool. That's some residual income that I didn't even see coming from speaking engagement. So, you know, your book is your book. Your book is as old as you make it. Your book is as fresh as you make it. Your book is your story, your journey, and how you come to the table and your mindset is what's going to change the altitude of how far it goes. Amen. Thank you very much. Tell the people where we can follow you and your story and your book on the interwebs. Absolutely. So my website is ErnestOwens.com, E-R-N-E-S-T, O-W-E-N-S. On there, you can find my publicists, my um, booking agents. So if there's appearances, things like that, that information is all on the website. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens, M-R-E-R-N-E-S-T-O-W-E-N-S. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook. But Twitter, Instagram is where you'll find my most public posts and things of that nature. And you can get my book wherever books are sold. And just also, too, I do the audiobook and I am the voice of my audiobook. So if you love what you've heard, my sound, my cadence, this is exactly how I read my book. I love it. And I've heard that it's been getting great reviews. People love the audio version of the book. So, yeah, Ernest, he's not lying. Check out the audio book as well. Ernest, thank you so much for being on the Read, Write, and Create podcast. We appreciate you. Wish you all the best of luck as you continue with your southern leg of your, I'm going to say, continuous book tour. Thank you so much, Lori. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ernest Owens. I mean, I'm pretty hyped after all of that. I hope you are feeling inspired and motivated to take control of your writing career and to get your books out into the world. Here are some takeaways I want you to remember about book selling and book promotion. One, first and foremost, write a good book and fall in love with that book. Two, Fall in love with the promotional process as much as you loved the writing process. Three, if you had enough courage to pitch your book to an agent and a publisher, then you should have enough courage to pitch your book to a bookseller, an event planner, or a potential reader. Four, make friends with the booksellers in your community. Five, remember to use the power of collaboration. Other authors are your friends, not your competition. Six, define what success looks like before you start the book selling process. Seven, 
Remember that even people who hate read your book are still buying your book. And number eight, be the Angela Bassett of book selling rather than the Oscar winner who never scores another leading role. Now that's it. Go out and sell some books. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Now, did you guys notice that this is the 10th episode of the Read, Write, and Create podcast? Yes, it is. And I'm really proud that we've made it this far because apparently the majority of people who start podcasts don't make it past episode seven. So yay us, yay Read, Write, and Create. If you are actually feeling that way, you know, you want to celebrate with us, in honor of our 10th episode, would you be so kind as to take a moment when you're done listening to this show today and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform or go to your favorite social media platform and share the show there. I would appreciate it so much because creating an amazing show doesn't leave me a whole lot of time to promote this amazing show. So it really helps when the listeners can pitch in. So whatever you can do to spread the word about this podcast, I would be ever so grateful. Thank you. Now, don't forget, if you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website. That's at readwriteandcreate.com. By the way, if you haven't already, check out my list of writing retreats in 2023 and my list of BIPOC writing festivals taking place this year. It's all on the Read, Write, and Create blog. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Read, Write, and Create bi-monthly newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find out about my latest classes, creative offerings, professional writing opportunities, and so much more. So be sure to sign up for that. And of course, I'll leave a link in the show notes where you can do that. All right, that's it. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, Keep writing.